Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Michael, and today we continue our series entitled, I Am, from the Gospel of John. We said last week that in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this phrase, I am, specifically seven times where he then makes something about himself known. And when he does that, he is always pointing his story and our story together with Israel's story. So there's a pointing back toward what happened in the nation of Israel. There's a pointing forward to what he will do in the life of his devoted followers. Last week, if you weren't with us, we described, we heard Jesus describe himself as the bread of life, reminding us that it was God who was the one who provided manna for the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings. We learned that in our story, Jesus is the one that satisfies our deepest longings. He's the one who eternally saves our soul. And we walked away last week with the reminder that we are to look to Christ, who is the bread of life, to meet our truest needs. Last week, we also challenged one another to take the next seven weeks and to read through the Gospel of John at least twice. You remember that? I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but next week I'm going to ask you if you read. All right? A little accountability from the front. You know, you can accomplish that. We can accomplish that as a church body if we simply read one chapter of John per day. I heard one this morning testify to what God was doing through the reading of the Gospel of John in her life. And I want to encourage you to follow her example and to read as well. And as you do, let's ask that the Holy Spirit would deepen our understanding and our love, our affection for Jesus Christ over the next couple of months. This morning we turn our attention to the next phrase, which is found in John chapter 8. You're encouraged to take your Bibles and turn there, or grab a pew Bible from in front of you, and you can turn to page 757, and you'll find John chapter 8. As well, the words here in a moment will be on the screen behind me. As you're turning there, let me kind of set up the morning. The setting of this saying, the second say I am saying, is the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was one of the several annual celebrations that the Jews kept in accordance with the Old Testament law. And as we move toward John chapter 8, we find in John chapter 7 verse 14 that Jesus is teaching in the temple about midway through that week-long celebration, and the people are amazed at his teaching ability and the the depth of his understanding of the Word of God. And then toward the end of John 7, we find Jesus back in the temple again on the last day of the festival, and he's teaching. He makes two statements that day that remind us of the Exodus journey. And those statements, as we find, will point toward his role as Messiah of God's people. Now listen, as he makes these statements, as you read John 7 and 8, as he makes these statements, the Pharisees respond by questioning Jesus' authority. Jesus comes back and he says, listen, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Pretty blunt. Many do believe that day, it says, but some still resisted. And the pushback against Jesus continues, and he calls those who refuse to believe, listen to this, children of the devil. (laughs) They're not very happy at this point, right? And so they retort by stating, Jesus, you are a demon-possessed Samaritan. 
They couldn't come back. They couldn't imagine anything worse than saying that. And then they claim that their true father is Abraham. And then Jesus responds in John 8, verse 58. Oh, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We only have to think back to Exodus chapter 3. Moses says, who shall I say sent me? I am. Jesus in that moment, in this back and forth, really, really uh, round tight discussion, in the midst of that, he says, I am. I was before, you think Abraham is your father? I preceded Abraham. I am superior to Abraham. Just as last week he said, I'm superior to Moses. He claims divinity. He claims Godhead right there in the temple in that moment. Listen to verse 59. (laughs) No wonder their response, right? So they pick up the stones to throw at him. But Jesus hides himself and went out of the temple. Needless to say, when we read John 7 and 8 and during that time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, this is one of the most intense moments we find in all of the Gospel accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry. Well, this morning I want you to hear the two statements from Jesus that caused these religious leaders to be so upset that day. If you have found John chapter 8 this morning, you're invited to stand for the reading of God's Word. We do that, if you're new, we do that here at First Southern as a way of acknowledging that indeed God is our High King and that His words, His Word, is authoritative in our lives. I want to drop back to John chapter 7, verse 37 and 39, and then I'm going to read 8, verse 12. These are the two statements that He makes on the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Hear how John records it. On the last day, John chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and He cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John comments, he says, Now this, Jesus said, about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The second saying, John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pause in this moment simply to thank you that we have your word in front of us. We would be desperate and lost without it. Thank you for making yourself known through the word Thank you for having John record these sayings on that day of the feast in the temple. Spirit, we ask today that you would teach us, and you would convict us, and you would cause us to follow Jesus Christ, the light of our life. 
Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus isn't holding back about his identity, is he? He's declaring that he will give the indwelling Spirit of God to all who would believe in him. He's claiming that he is the long-awaited light of the world. No wonder. No wonder that the religious leaders that day tried to kill him. They saw this minimally as blasphemy. Here's this man, maybe a prophet, but claiming to be God? But it's the second of these two statements. I am the light of the world. That's what draws our attention this morning. I am light. That's what Jesus says about himself. Look around this morning. Light, right? Think about, have you ever considered, I was thinking about this this week. I had some late nights and some early mornings of work this week. Perhaps you did too. Have you ever considered how dependent we are on light in our modern day society? Could you imagine life without light? I'm talking about the artificial man-made kind of light. Think about that for a minute. I'll be quiet. You, what would life be like if you could not flip on a switch in your home or in your business? Think about it. It would mean work would begin no earlier than sunrise and would cease at sunset likely. It would, praise be to the Lord, mean more sleep. Amens? And no alarms. Oh, oh! you people like alarms. Okay, all right. It would mean no television, iPod, phone, computer screens. It would mean no lamps or overhead lights. It would likely mean limited or no travel after dark. Listen, we don't know life apart from such light sources. For certain, November 1879 changed everything. That was the month that Thomas Edison filed for a patent on what would become the beginning of a commercially viable light bulb. It wasn't the first light bulb, but it was one that was going to change and modernize society. The night skies would never again be the same. They would be lit by more than the stars. People would begin to rise earlier for work, with some even working night shift. Man-made electrical light, it changed everything. And as we'll find this morning, Jesus, who came as the light of the world, changed everything as well, but in ways that have genuine, eternal significance. So as we look at John 8, verse 12, we're going to study one verse this morning, all right? We're going to narrow to that. This one saying. I want us to ask three simple questions of the passage. How does this saying connect to Israel's story? Remember I told you earlier on that every time Jesus made one of these I am statements in the gospel, it always pointed back toward there was a connection to Israel's story. You remember why, right? Because John is writing, John the evangelist, he's writing with the attempt to convince people with 
most likely predominantly who had some Jewish background, that indeed Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Christ, the Son of God. So that's what he's attempting to convince. So he's trying to say, let me make some connections for you. So how does this connect to Israel's story? Second question. What did Jesus reveal about himself in making that I am the light of the world statement? And then out of it, what does he promise his followers? Really, that can be our template for the next several weeks. So ask these questions of these passages. How does this saying connect to Israel's story? This is going to be a good place for us to start. You remember that John tells us that Jesus uttered this statement on the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Why is that an important detail? Why didn't he say it in the middle of the week when everybody was enamored by his teaching? They were all gathered there. In the court, he certainly could have spoken these words then. Why didn't he teach it to those that were listening and awaiting his words? Why why did he wait? I think it's helpful for us to understand exactly what the Feast of the Tabernacles was. It was indeed a week-long celebration. It memorialized the wilderness experience of the Jews as they were being led by God to the Promised Land. You remember God had rescued them from Egyptian slavery. They had been in bondage for more than 400 years. And God sends His servant Moses and uses Moses. But ultimately God is seen as the rescuer. And He's taking him from that land to their new land. Their promised land. A place, as the Scripture teaches, a place of rest. And during that 40-year journey, they lived in booths or tabernacles. We'd call them tents. Can you imagine that? How many of you like camping? Raise your hand. How many of you think camping is a hotel? Right? Oh, come on now, be honest. Just, mm, I don't know who it is. So for 40 years, the Israelites, they live in tents, in booths, in tabernacles. So according to Leviticus 23, verse 41 through 43, they were commanded to keep this festival, this feast, every year throughout all generations as a way of remembering what God had done. Listen to Leviticus 23. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths, tents, think tents, homemade shacks, basically, lean-tos. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. These feasts, these festivals, these temple rituals, they were means and mechanisms of teaching the next and the subsequent generation. Dad, why, why do we camp out in the backyard for a week in the seventh month of the year, every year? Why do we do that? Why do we eat our meals in this tent, Dad? Why, Mom, why, why is it that I can't sleep on my comfortable bed in the house? Oh, let me tell you the story. 
Let, let me tell you what our God did for our forefathers. How He rescued them and journeyed with them faithfully for 40 years in the wilderness. God wanted His people to recall His overwhelming grace evidenced in the rescue of them. He wanted them to remember that He had brought them into a land, the Scripture describes, as a land flowing with milk and honey. That's a way of saying it was a place of abundance and joy. A place of rest and restoration. No longer did they live in temporary housing, but in a permanent place. This feast also reminded them that God is the one who went before them in the wilderness. And indeed, He is the God who goes before us in our earthly sojourn this day. Aren't you glad God goes before you? That's part of what He was reminding through this festival. Exodus 13, verse 21 and 22. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, did, I love this, did not depart from before the people. The cloud and the fire were evidence of God's presence with and among and before His people. Oh, they were dependent upon God to show the way through the wilderness by means of this cloud and this fire. They did not know the way to the promised land. They needed God to guide them. Oh, and every night of the festival... It was a party. It was a feast. Y'all like parties? You like feast? Perhaps we should, fellowship team, could we just, I mean, just say in week-long celebrations? Any takers? Roasted meats, good foods. Every night of the festival, four candelabras. Some have suggested, it's not clear, some suggested that there are tens and Dozens and dozens of feet tall, super tall candlesticks, in essence, candelabras. They would have had bowls about this big, and they would have poured oil into those each and every night. So these four candelabras that stood in the midst of the court of women were lit by the priest. They, they would burn brightly such that they could be seen throughout all of Jerusalem. They were like stadium lights up on the hill. Instruments would play. Pious, devoted, godly men would sing and dance in celebration of God's grace amongst them. It was indeed a celebration of God's amazing provision for His people. But on the last night of the feast, the lights would not be lit It was more of a solemn assembly and a reminder that Messiah who had come to be known as the light of the world had not yet come. Celebration of what God had done. Yet the light of the world 
the one who would come had not yet arrived. So in this story, in this back and forth, in the midst of the temple on that last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, what does Jesus reveal about himself when he makes this great statement? So when Jesus stands in the same area of the temple, on this, the last, and as John says, the great day of the feast, and he declares, I, I am the light of the world. Church, he's claiming the Messiah has arrived. Oh, it was dark. You have been waiting for the lights to be lit. And here they are. He's not just the light to the Jews, though. As John often tells us in his Gospel account, he is the light to the world. Salvation was not just for the Israelites alone, but for all who would believe. As the prophet Isaiah records concerning the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 49, verse 6, I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach where? To the end of the earth. The gospel was never to be kept just for the Jews. Salvation was never just for the Jews. It was for the nations. It was for men and women, boys and girls like us in this room. If we believe and confess Christ, we then are recipients of this light. So it is, Jesus is the one who goes before us. He is the one who rescues us. He is the one who brings us out of darkness and into light. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, that we indeed have been delivered from the domain of darkness. And we are a people now, if we believe, we have been transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. This, this is the work that God has done on our behalf, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are a people who no longer walk in darkness. We are now people who live their lives in the domain of Christ, who is the light of the world. I am the light of the world, Jesus declares on the last day of the feast. He, in essence, is saying, you have been waiting for a long time for me, and now I'm here. And he says, believe in me. He who does not believe in me will die in their sins. Oh, but if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. He goes on, though, to say more. He answers our question, what does Jesus promise to his followers? Listen again to John chapter 8, verse 12, where we began. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We've explained the first part. But what promise does he give to us? He says first, whoever follows me. There, the verb choice means it's a continual ongoing action. 
So what Jesus is calling for you, he says, whoever continually, steadfastly, regularly makes a habit in his life or her life to follow me, that individual indeed will be my disciple. What Jesus is calling for and what John does throughout his gospel, he calls for what I would consider wholehearted devotion and discipleship to Christ. He's not looking for casual adherence to rules or laws or maybe some affiliation with Jesus. Jesus is saying, listen, he or she who continually, steadfastly walks with me, who follows me. I wonder this morning, Is that how your life is marked? If people were to look at you, and you were to claim, as I trust most in this room, to be a disciple, a follower of Christ, is that followership exhibited as people look from the outside into your life? Oh, we're not going to be perfect. We've talked about that. We all got messy lives. We all come to this place every Sunday morning with baggage and sin. That's why we pause 10 minutes into our service to confess our sin and ask for forgiveness, to repent and walk afresh and follow Christ anew. We talk about the fact that we've been moved from the domain of darkness to the domain of light. We are no longer darkened, but we have been enlightened by the gospel of Christ. And in that reality, we have become a disciple. We have a new redeemed identity. And part of that is that we are a learner, a follower, a disciple. So, simple question. Is it wholehearted followership? Or are you following him in this lane, but in these two lanes, oh, you're holding back. And, and this one, you're, you're not even getting out of the garage. You're hanging on to this section. This is yours. Christ calls us as followers to count the cost. Take up your cross daily and follow me. For us to be wholehearted disciples, fully devoted followers of Christ, we're going to have to die to self. We have to fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith as the writer of Hebrews says. Whoever continually follows me, who exhibits in their life wholehearted discipleship, there's something good that will come in your life, he says. And he tells us what that is. I want you to go back, though, for a moment. What if the Israelites had not followed the pillar of cloud and fire? What if Moses had said, you know what? I don't feel like following the fire today. You know what? It's headed that way. We're everybody. Right? Or that would be a right hand turn, correct? You people apparently have blinkers in your cars. Let's take a right, hard right. Let's go this direction instead of following the presence of God in our midst. Could you imagine the demise of the people of Israel? We're told in numbers that there were some 620 
3,000 men between ages of 20 and 50 who were a part of that group. Can you imagine how large that group was? Hey, Moses, we don't think we're going to follow the fire today. Oh, don't get me wrong, church. Likely there's a day in most of our weeks, a moment, an hour, in any given month, where we sort of just cross our hands and stabilize our feet and say, God, I don't want to walk the way you're leading me. I know what it's going to cost me. And I don't want to go there. Oh, I know, God. I, I know you know better than I do. And I know you know the right path to lead me on. You are my shepherd and you lead me down a path, as David says, for your name's sake, your glory. But I think, I think no today. Hear me. Let me be the one standing in the pathway with flags raised, waving them furiously and saying, don't walk that path. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever continuously, fully devoted to me follows me, there's good that will come. Listen, the light of the world, God, He is sovereign. He knows the future, and you and I don't. Amen? I'm glad. Many of you in this room, over the last three years, I've gotten to know you. I've gotten to know your stories. Some of you have walked pathways I could not imagine. Losses, hurts, pains, defeats that I think would train wreck me and put me in the rut. I listen to some of your stories and I'm challenged, I'm inspired, and I think I could never do that. But you've been wise. You followed his guidance. You've clung to the light of Christ. You've held on. He's been faithful. And you have followed him. We indeed have a Savior who promises to go before us and to lead us. Church, our responsibility as a disciple is simple. Follow Him. Whatever the cost, trust that pathway, church. It may mean heartache and difficulty, but even that will shape and form who you become and how you shine the light of Christ. He says, whoever continuously follows me will not walk in darkness. Listen, the promise for those who believe. That's what he means. 
Whoever follows me, whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness. You will not walk in the darkness of Satan. You will not walk in the darkness of this world. Sin has a way of making things dark. Listen, those who prefer the world's darkness, they avoid the light of the gospel. Just like the Pharisees did that day in the temple courts. Jesus says, listen, I am the light of the world. I'm the one you have waited for. You are in darkness, and I'm light. They refused the gospel light. They refused to come to faith in Christ. The Pharisees that day, as Jesus shone his light, they recoiled and they rejected. Why? Because they were exposed. Their attitudes, their sinfulness, their, their own selfishness, their own personal idol worship, etc. All this, who they are, they were all covered up in their own religion. And so they recoiled. Listen, when you and I share the gospel with others, they may often reject it and recoil and push back. They might even say, you, you're crazy. You, you are demon-possessed. That's what they told Jesus. Why? Because as John tells us, the light, the light has a way of exposing sin. And none of us, none of us want to expose that stuff in our life. Oh, but when we've come to the light of Christ, He washes us clean. And that darkness of our soul is washed white through the crimson blood of Christ. Amen? So for the believer, it's not harmful to come to the light. We actually are drawn to the light. And we're refreshed. But the unbeliever pushes back. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But, here's a beautiful promise, will have the light of life. That is, those who believe will have the light that the life, will have the light that gives life. What that means is this. Jesus is saying, listen, if you will follow me, you'll not be in the darkness anymore. You'll be transferred to the domain of light and you will have eternal life. Oh my goodness. Will have. It is continuous. It is permanent. It is a radical transformation in our life. Those are the promises He gives to those who will follow Him. You'll enjoy eternal life and you will enjoy and be a recipient of my leadership and I'll lead you down that pathway. So this morning, what are we to do with Jesus and His declaration that He is the light of the world? I want you to have a takeaway this morning. My mind immediately goes to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 and 16. This is where Jesus uses the same word for light that is used here in the Gospel of John. You know this passage, listen to this. Just previously, he has said to the disciples, you are salt of the world. Then he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. 
but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So on one hand, Jesus says, I am light of the world. Messiah has arrived. The celebration of the Feast of the Tabernacles, oh, it's ended. It's fulfilled in me. I'm the light. But at the same time, he turns and he says to his true followers, you are the light of the world. Hmm. So when we put those two ideas together, church, Jesus is the light of the world and we are the light of the world. We come to this reality, as one writer puts it so eloquently, that we are to kindle our torches at His bright flame and show the world something of His light. My question to us this morning is are we kindling our torch in the brightness of His light. That we might leave this place this morning and go back out into what Paul describes as a corrupt society in Philippians chapter 2. Will we, as Paul talks about, will we be shining stars in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation? That's what Paul calls us to. That's what Jesus says we are to do. He promises that He will use us to tell the world that He's the light. He's choosing us to be the light bearers, the torch bearers. So church, may we be a people who kindle our torch so that we may show His light in a dark world. And you know how long we're to do that? We're to do it until He takes us home or until He returns. John closes out the book of Revelation chapter 21 this way. Listen to this passage. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Christ came declaring, I am the light of the world. It is He who will give light in the new city, the new heavens and the new earth. Will you, church, kindle afresh the torch that you might be a light in a dark world? Let us be a people that leave this place and allow Christ's light to shine through us. Let's make a difference. Be fully committed, devoted followers of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word this morning.
There is much that's contained even in this one short verse. Lord, we evaluate our lives against it. This morning we are asking ourselves, just how committed are we? Just how well are we following you in our lives? Likely, Father, we are all coming up short. And so we ask that you'd forgive us. Father, we ask that you would guide us on a path of righteousness for your name's sake. You are indeed our shepherd. You are our light. You are a pillar of cloud and fire that goes before us. Oh, and you, you are bringing us into our permanent dwelling place. Father, we long. We long for the day when there is no temple in the city. When there is no need for sun or moon because your glory is the light and your lamb is the lamp. Father, save those in our midst who don't know Christ and cause us to walk more faithfully with you. In Christ's name, amen.